I was in infant school, so I must have been about five. And we had uh, books got delivered every month. So I'm sat next to this lad, and he had this bright yellow book that was about uh, Red Indians. Sorry, I can't say that. Native Americans, Red Indians at the time. I could see they had an ink drawing of a Native American with his arm on the ground. He was lying down, listening. And I, you know, read enough even at that age to know he was listening for things in the distance. And he said, no, he's... He's dead. I said, he's not. He's listening for things in the distance. And it was in the context of the chapter. It was pretty obvious. So it escalated quite quickly, me being me. Um, and I started calling, you're thick, you're thick. So the teacher came over and um, she basically, I was hoping she was this authority figure. And to me, even at that age, the truth mattered. And she said, Oh, leave him, Paul. It's like everyone's entitled to their opinion. And turned <laughs> So in that one moment, I, I, I think from the age of five, so you're talking 50 years later on, that's never left me because I've witnessed it at universities. Um, that authorities who are guardians of the truth is you know, putting too fine a spin on it. But the truth does matter and learning does matter and they've turned their backs on it. Hello and welcome to Trigonometry. I'm Francis Foster. I'm Constantine Kisson. And this is a show for you if you want honest conversations with fascinating people. Our brilliant guest today is a retired academic who's absolutely fed up of what he's had to deal with his entire career. And he's come on Trigonometry to drop some truth bombs. Paul Taylor, welcome to Trigonometry. Chuffed to be here. Thanks very much. It's great to have you on. You're going to blackpill us about the state of the <laughs> academic world. Uh, but before we get into that, tell us, uh, who are you, how are you, where you are, what has been the journey through life that leads you to be sitting here talking to us? Well, until a couple of months ago, I was an academic at uh, Leeds University. And before that, I'd been at Salford um, and I studied, I did my degree and PhD at uh, University of Edinburgh. And the reason, I'd split it into two, there's my motivations for wanting to speak. And it was basically, I think I was on the risk of uh, having an aneurysm uh, watching the television and the type of things that are said. It's a very common condition <laughs> nowadays, I tell you. Well, there, but we'll get on to hopefully some of the, the good aspects of this. So, for example, I went through a phase where I kept shouting, it's the Salem bloody witch trials. And then Andrew Doyle wrote his book on the new Puritans. So I thought, well, at least I'm not going mad. Um, and th this is the type of thing. And it's mostly the media's inability. So if I can talk about what annoyed me most about the media, and I'll try and do that as quickly as possible. But... My, one of my main points is the, the way in which the media dumbs down everything. So and I know that's a bit of an obvious point to make, but I can go into specifics. And it, I just sometimes think I get a tattoo on my forehead saying it's more complicated than that. And if there was a machine to make things unduly simple, it would be places like the BBC, which I can, you know, you can hands off commercial TV um, or radio because it's not their remit to necessarily educate the public. But the BBC, it's supposed to be part of the historical remit. And I've, I just remember him watching um, terrible things. So, for example, without going into the politics of Brexit, which easier said than done, the level of discourse. So have you heard of Target 2 balances? No. no. Right. If I can remember, it stands for a trans-European automatic real-time gross settlement express transfer system. And it's because 
in the EU, when they used to have float, before they had the euro, you'd have floating exchange rates. So if you're um, buying loads from a foreign country, your currency depreciates, they become more expensive, and this balancing mechanism. The Germans typically export loads. And this means that in the old days, the Deutschmark would have appreciated, and that would have balanced things out. Because they got rid of that, they have a paper trail. They have within the EU that everything still in euros still has to be paid. So they have nominal balances. So the Germans have this massive surplus. And it wasn't too bad until about 2008 with the Lehman banking crisis. And then you can check out that it's a while since I looked at them, but it's about Germany's owed inverted commas, about 1.4 trillion euros by the rest of Europe. So if, for example, a country ever wanted to leave, Italy wanted to leave, and I know there's jokes about the Hotel <laughs> California, um, you can check in, but you can't leave. But this is one of the reasons Italy are on the hook, or they could just renege. But there are huge balances which show the inequalities that because of variable exchange rates are no longer there. Now, forgive me that it's a slightly technical economic analysis of what's going on, but it's not insignificant. And if you don't believe me, Mario Draghi, who's supposed to be you know, the godfather, so to speak, of economics within the EU, he's the go-to man, the fixer. He, he's gone on record as saying it's one of the most first things he looks at each morning are the target two balances. So these are serious issues. Now, can you remember in any discussion, um, and this idea that it, the ignorance was always on one side, when I think it's quite clear, I mentioned it to a few colleagues, um, target what? But they were somehow the, the, the self-appointed, I know you've been reading Thomas Sowell, um, I think you've said in the past, and he has this idea about the self-anointed where intellectuals give themselves credit for things they don't know and act as if they do. So that's just the, 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 the default position of the media, as far as I can see. Um, and there's instances, so I, I, I was getting slightly annoyed. I think on one of the roars, um, <laughs> you've had, you had to go with Alistair Campbell. Mm. And that was the other thing that was risking giving me an aneurysm, because you made the very valid point. Why is he being spoken to? Um, this is a guy who should be in The Hague, <laughs> not in the television studio. And there's, you can find it online. He did an Irish, uh, something like The Late Show, and Nigel Farage was on with him. And I've only watched a small segment, but the antipathy, there's a live audience, the antipathy towards uh, Nigel Farage, you can cut it with a knife. And at one point, this will surprise you, but Alistair Campbell gets quite angry and is talking over everybody. <laughs> and he says, um, Nigel, he, this is a direct quote, Nigel, Nigel, own your own shit. And the audience gives a spontaneous round of applause, unless I've just imagined that bit. <laughs> and I'm thinking, own your own shit. Is this a projection? Um, just the inability, um, the, the level of way in which civil discourse, the way in which to have an not even an intellectual, but just a rational argument has become completely ruined by people's um, tribal affinities. And I'm from, by blood, I'm Irish. And it really does annoy me um, the way in which the Irish give themselves a free pass on some of the difficult issues ar around the EU, which now they're trying to get rid of their tax haven status. Some of these things might come to the fore. Well, we'll, we'll get onto all of that. And uh, your point about Alistair Campbell and Nigel Farage is quite a funny one, because if you think about public consciousness, 
which of those two people is considered more immoral and more evil and more despicable and more specifically morally questionable? It is without doubt, it's certainly if you watch the media, it would be Nigel Farage, a guy who followed the democratic process. Some people didn't like what he achieved, but that's what he did. Alistair Campbell, on the other hand, very different kettle of fish. Uh, certainly Iraqis, I think, would agree with that. But you still haven't answered my question, which is what your, what's your background? Well, that's what academics do. Obviously. Um, <laughs> <laughs> well, um, you might have uh, worked out by now, born and bred in Liverpool. And my first, I can give you two little examples of my first educational experience before I talk about how terrible the universities are. Uh, my mother, I think, I think they diagnose it now as severely dyslexic, but it was never, I don't mm. think it was too early in those days. So she really struggled with reading, but I think she transferred, she hothoused me. So I've got a very vivid memory of being, if anyone knows Liverpool, it's uh, Chilwell Five Ways, there was Chilwell Library. And I was tiny and I was looking up and there's a big uh, librarian and they wouldn't give me a library card because I was far too young. So my mother was all scouts. Come on, give him any book, any book, give him one. So he handed me just an adult nonfiction book, which I promptly read without any problems at all. And he thought, fair enough, here's your ticket. So that was my um, love of books. And without sounding like old father time, because I know you, for example, Constantine, you're addicted to your bloody mobile. <laughs> um, you know, you're attacked, it's like an umbilical cord, doesn't it? But those days, what did you have? You know, wooden toys and loops and uh, hoops, whatever. No, but just there wasn't much. So you did, and telly was even worse now, because at least you've got the internet now. But, um, you, you know, there wasn't that much to do. So I read, you know, I, I read um, an absolute hell of a lot. And then I had this very formative experience. We can, I can tell you the story, and then we can just call the interview to a halt, because it just encapsulates everything. I was in infant school, so I must have been about five. And we had uh, books got delivered every month. And it was like, you know, one of these book clubs and it was a big deal. And I remember um, if, if someone's a bibliophile, you read the smell of books. There's something about it. And it's this wood pulp smell. It's still, it's like Proust and his bloody Madeleines. But I can, I can smell the books still. And um, we had a nice, I'm not uh, crying poverty. We had a nice house, but I don't know it's a northern phrase. There's a phrase, all fur coat and no knickers. <laughs> so we had a nice house, but we weren't spoilt as kids. So I never got one of these books. So I'm sat next to this lad who I've subsequently, I now know in my head, excuse the vulgarity, as little Johnny Fuckwit. And he had this bright yellow book that was about uh, Red Indians. Oh, sorry, I can't say that now. Native Americans, Red Indians at the time. And it was all about, I, I had it you know, over his fat shoulder, I'm looking, and um, he was, <laughs> and it was about India, Indian culture and what they did. And I could see they had an ink drawing of a Native American with his arm on the ground. He was lying down listening. And I, you know, read enough even at that age to know he was listening for things in the distance. So he said, I mentioned this to him and he said, no, he's, He's dead. I said, he's not. He's listening for things in the distance. And it was in the context of the chapter. It was pretty obvious. So it escalated quite quickly, me being me. Um, and I started calling, you're thick. You're thick. So the teacher came over and um, she basically, I was hoping she was this authority figure. And to me, even at that age, the truth mattered. Mm. So I thought, he's not dead. He's alive. It's about Native American culture. She's going to tell him. And she said, oh, leave him, Paul. It's like everyone's entitled to their opinion. And <laughs> <laughs> I 
So in that one moment, it was, I, I think from the age of five, so you're talking 50 years later on, that's never left me because I've witnessed it at universities. Um, that authorities who are guardians of the truth is you know, putting too fine a spin on it. But the truth does matter and learning does matter. And they've turned their backs on it. So anyway, that was infant school. I went to a, it was a, I got the 11 plus, did a grammar school in Liverpool and it would have been a grammar school, but it turned into an independent school when I was already at it because they threatened turning it into a comp. Mm-hmm. Um, so, but everyone who was already there was sorted, all your fees were paid and everything it was the 11 plus. And that, we might get onto that later, but that taught me about the selection procedure because I benefited from my, it was in West Derby, my school, but people from all over Liverpool went to it. And it was the top one or two percent of, you know, Liverpool who got to that school. So it was just, and I know there are issues about everyone, arguably everyone should be educated together, but there's undoubtedly advantages when the teacher doesn't have to explain the most basic things to people. And I experienced this, I did maths. um, I've always had to think about math. I absolutely adore maths, but I'm not particularly good at it. When I say not particularly good, I got maths O level a year early and I got an A. So nationally, I was good at maths, but in my, I was in the A set for maths. Out of 34, I'd regularly come 30 or 31st. So it, when something was explained to me in class, I knew very quickly that these people are, they're getting it in 10 seconds. It's taken me three minutes. <laughs> I don't have a comparative advantage on this topic, but that didn't stop me loving it. Mm. But that also, I've always had in my life as well, educationally, this trade-off between it sounds like an American advert doesn't be the best you can be <laughs> uh, versus everyone should have access. So I understand the dilemma, but I, I, I am a massive advocate. I think Peter Hitchens has just done a book called The Revolution Betrayed about grammar schools and what they achieved. And, you know, someone like Anton's, a, you know, a, a, um, a ne'er-do-well from recent times, but, you know, Liverpool in the 80s, that was rough. I'm, you know, I'm not kidding, uh, boys from the black stuff, all that type of stuff. So I've got vivid memories. I know it's not Soviet Union levels of poverty, but it, it was... It's much, much worse. <laughs> no, it was, it was pretty rough, but everyone I knew, I was going to say, who made it out of Liverpool, went to a grammar school. And insofar as there was any social mobility in those days, it was grammar school assisted. And I think that's a, a massive argument in Peter Hitchens' book. So if I'd, ironically, if I'd have gone to my local comprehensive school, it would have been, um, I know you don't like class analysis. No, it would it's have been, I don't like it. No, uh, I'm joking. Yeah, yeah. It would have been um, much more homogenous in terms of the mm. local catchment area. Yeah. So ironically, yeah. I went to a, an independent school that had a much, much better mix of people from around the city. And you got a sense of how, you know, I was hothoused as a kid to read... Um, there was never an issue, um, you know, I did, we weren't putting money in the electricity meter to get the lights on, which some, you know, people I studied with did. Um, so I, I, I was just very, very conscious, but that was their way out, was by education. So, you know, this sounds like I'm talking about the developing world, but mm-hmm. in parts of England specifically that I know most about, that's true. So that was, um, I did A-levels. I went on to do A-levels. I did, and I'll only mention them because I want to pick up on some of the themes. I did uh, Spanish, English literature, and economics, and we did, everyone did general studies. Mm. But the um, English and Spanish, 
in those days, we did about a good third of it was literature and history. So I did the Conquistadores, so I learned all about that, which was fascinating. And what, for today's knowledge, it's interesting that when they went to Mexico, I think it was Cortez, um, they managed to bring down the whole Aztec empire with very few people, a few Rottweiler dogs and a few horses that scared the locals. But that was because of various complex reasons, the weakness of the Aztec empire. And the idea that nowadays small vocal groups are doing so much damage, if there's a rotten culture or there's something wrong with the, the dominant culture, um, absolutely catastrophic things can happen. So that's what I got from that. And also um, I did some existential, uh, Ernesto Sabato, El Tunel, which was an existential novel ahead of its time. It's better than Sartre, in, in my humble opinion. Um, so I got a taste for things like, and just reading in a foreign language, um, I think you've done translation work in the past, Constantine. And one of my frustrations teaching was, let's put it this way, if I saw an essay that was really grammatically really good, um, I'd look to see which part of Scandinavia they came from. Because British students don't have facility with their own language. So the idea that they'd have facility with other languages, it, I think that's one of uh, the saddest things about, um, you get lots of good inputs from overseas students, but I think as a the UK as a whole, I think language teaching is getting worse, not better in terms of uh, resources, the amount of uh, language teachers. So that was one of the things I learned, and it just brings so much. So maybe later on we'll get on to, but I've started looking at um, Midrash, which is a, um, a Hebrew uh, biblical studies technique and body of literature, because I'm fascinated by how meaning is constructed. And um, that, that approach to language, and when you look at the, we'll hopefully get onto the issues about the canon and you know the books that we should be reading. But when you look at Old Testament or Hebrew writings, and it, often it will have gone from Aramaic to Hebrew to Greek to English, and at every single point, someone's made a translation judgment that's got profound consequences on what the thing means. And if you don't have facility with language, so, you know, history, a historical context has been driven out of public discourse. Language skills are often limited. And the subtlety, the complexity of, of what's truly there. So I'll give you one little example before I go on. Um, there's, I think they're called the wisdom books. So I think it's Ecclesiastes, which is also known as um, Kohelet, uh, Proverbs, and the book of Job. And I'd, I'd never, I think we are talking off camera about once you're retired, you can read all the things you've wanted to read. And I never would have read, you know, Old Testament type, boring. And there's a guy in America called Robert Alter, who's a biblical scholar, and he's done a retranslation of the wisdom books. And I think in Ecclesiastes, there's a famous, there's a constant phrase, oh, vanity of vanities. And it's all about things under the sun. But he translates it as um, mere breath, mere breath. And then later on, there's a refrain, it's like herding wind. And it's existential literature from two and a half thousand years ago. Um, the language is beautiful. The meaning is beautiful. Um, and, but in order to engage with that, you have to have a frame of reference, which that's what those, um, the English and the Spanish, 
But having said all that, and this is why I've learned as my career progressed, because I'd done economics, I thought my father was an accountant. I thought, well, I'll go off and do an economics and accounting degree, and I'll be sorted for life. So I signed up, I did economics and accounting at Edinburgh, realized very, very quickly accountancy wasn't for me. So I managed to do economics and politics. And through the politics over the years, I've drifted more and more to the literature, which is what I should have done from the get-go. But in the first year of Edinburgh, one of the highlights for me was we had a, um, a, it was a general course, but basically people across the social sciences, you had to do a statistics course. And there was this guy, I think you've spoken in the past, Francis, about teachers and the importance of them. Mm -hmm. So it's the course no one wants to teach. It was statistics. There's a load of grumpy public school boys and people like me. And it was like listening to someone visual, verbally describe the visual manipulations of a Rubik's Cube. It was absolutely wonderful. I've never heard anyone speak about maths the way he did. And I think statistics is quite specific because it has a social context. It's not pure maths. And if, you know, Neil Ferguson and the COVID bunch had done any proper statistics, we wouldn't have been in lockdown for what seemed like five years, um, which is, a, you know, it's a major issue. People don't do uh, stats. So jumping around, but that would be, if you're going to say, what, what's your recommendation that everyone does? I, I forget all this government or let's learn what democracy is. Every student that can possibly be force-fed a statistics course should be. And then so it, you're in agreement with Rishi Sunak then, Paul? Well, specifically <laughs> statistics, I think he just wants everyone to turn everyone into an investment banker. But if you're going <laughs> to be an active citizen, so we are jumping around now, but you, you pointed me in that direction. I'm blaming you. Um, you know, the, the grooming gang scandal, I remember seeing a discussion, one of the very few discussions on Channel 4, and I think it was Kathy Newman, and she was uh, talking with, is it Nazir Afzal, who was the Northwest Director of Public Prosecutions, and he's from a South Asian um, origin. And at one point, she was I think she was trying to argue, and forgive me if it wasn't Kathy Newman, but it sounds like the type of thing she'd do. She was trying to argue that because the vast majority of child abusers are white, that it's completely unfair to focus on the grooming gang scandal. And I'm thinking the overwhelming number of child abusers are white because the overwhelming number still in this country are white. So <laughs> it's your selection categories. Um, and then she, she actually said, um, he said, um, it's undeniable that the overwhelming um, demographic of these child abusers are uh, South Asian men of South Asian origin. And I remember she said, that's a bold statement. I'm thinking, really? No, that's a statement of basic truth. Mm -hmm. But anyway, that, so that statistics would have helped massively if Channel 4 reporters had ever done any or paid attention. Um, that would help in serious issues like that. But then in second year, the highlight of my whole university career, and you might like this, Constantine, I did a year-long course on 19th century Russian studies uh, that involved literature and history. And unlike today, it was, it was a year long. Um, so you didn't do these little bitty, you know, do a module here and a module there. Here's a module, there's a module everywhere. Um, it was just wonderful. And we did, it wasn't just, oh, you'll do um, Tolstoy and that's it. 
we went from Gogol to Genev, Lermontov. We did all the Dostoevsky. We did A War and Peace. We did Anna Karenina. That was half the course. The other half was history. So the intellectual ambition and scope, and you got people from within the humanities and social sciences got to do it. In today's universities, you can do like discovery courses or something. And you'd be lucky, they'd probably give you a few chapters of War and Peace, because obviously the whole book's far too tiring um, and too difficult. So that, in those days, what really struck me compared to now was the level of intellectual ambition. Talk to us briefly about your academic career, because we haven't got there yet. <laughs> right, I'll get to that. I'll get to the point then. So I um, went from Edinburgh to Salford. I spent, I wrote some books on my PhD. Sorry, I didn't mean PhD Edinburgh. That was on computer hacking. Mm. And that, it was interesting. I, I struggled to get, I got the PhD published, but it took a while because they said, I love the logic. They said, because no one's written on computer hackers before, we don't have a market for it which I thought was a bit odd because surely they want to sell things that haven't been written about. <laughs> but it was a sociological study of hackers, or as I would say, hackers, um, and how they went about it. And no one had um, done that before. So that was quite interesting. Then I did a book on hacktivism, which is politically motivated hacking. Mm. And that was all at uh, Salford, based upon my PhD. And then I moved more into... Um, so what, what's interesting about that is in my early academic career... And in the PhD, it was about how people interact with and try and control technology. So I wasn't arguing that technology dominates us. I was actively trying to seek ways in which people can take control of technology. But as my academic career progressed, I realized more and more, I, I became much more of a determinist. I think technology has very determining features that are massively underestimated. So... I moved more into what's known as the culture industry, what's known as, ironically, it's portrayed nowadays as cultural Marxism. Uh, Frankfurt School, I wrote a book called Critical, with a co-author called Critical Theories of Mass Media, then and now. So it was in the past and brought up to the modern era. And then I, got, um, I moved to Leeds and got very interested in Slavoj Žižek's work, again, labelled by some as a cultural Marxist. So what makes my career slightly unusual is I've studied technology in depth from a sociological point of view, but I'm very, very critical, and I think universities use technology in ways that are quite unthinking and uncritical. I've done a lot of cultural Marxism. Um, we used to sit there in Edinburgh, and it was, like, it was like the Bible. I remember specifically the edition of Das Kapital. It was paper-thin tissue paper. And we'd all reverentially go through it line by line. Um, and it was John Holloway taught me there, who was quite a well-known Marxist. So I've got all this Marxist background, and I treat it more as literature, though. To me, um, it's fascinating analysis of capitalism, but the idea that the assumptions are often bonkers, the analysis is great, and the conclusions are bonkers with legs on. Um, so I, I am in this slightly interesting situation where I'm immersed in this type of stuff, but simultaneously very critical of it. But I also think it gets a very, um, some of the so-called postmodern stuff gets a very bad rap and is profoundly misunderstood. 
And my sense is that if we're going to, some of the issues you talk about on the show, about how do we break through, how do we have this um, rational discourse in good faith, how do we relate to each other better, how do we have proper debates, one of the things you might want to talk about is the way in which people don't understand the things they're labelling. So I'm a massive fan of Douglas Murray, but I think he's on certain issues about, I think he's doing what Richard Grannon would call um, shadow work on postmodernism. I think he's misrepresented it and he's put on loads of bogeyman aspects. Interestingly, Andrew Doyle doesn't do this. I think Andrew Doyle's got a doctorate. And whenever I've heard him and I've read, he's very, very cautious about, he doesn't blame postmodernism. I think he distinguishes between postmodernism and applied postmodernism. So people have made a mess of. And I can relate to that because my book, uh, Critical Theories of Mass Media Then and Now, it was translated into Farsi. And I was interviewed by someone from, I'm not exaggerating, he was someone linked with the Revolutionary Council because retrospectively thinking about it, I was having a go at Western capitalist media from a very critical point of view. So if there's ever another, you know, revolution with the Ayatollahs, my book might be waved in the streets <laughs> of Tehran. But my point is, you don't know how your work's going to be used. You don't know how your work's going to be misinterpreted. And what I think's interesting is if it was, if the ivory tower was the old fashioned ivory tower that was quite tightly circumscribed and the weren't. So when I went to university in 1985, I think it was about 12% of people went to university. Now it's a good 50%. And you know, some of the concerns you've discussed on this show about how bad ideas percolate into society at large. Well, first of all, the ivory tower was more ring-fenced. And I think Oscar Wilde said, you know, the, the stupidity of professors is long studied for and earned. <laughs> but those stupid ideas, I absolutely, I've spent a bit of time with Slavoj Žižek. I was the unofficial tour manager when he gave some talks in the north of England. But I wouldn't trust him to run a bath, <laughs> never mind run a country. So the idea that you use some of their ideas and you, you, you see that as some type of guidance for societal policy and stuff. It's brilliant intellectually. I think David Starkey made the point that um, conservative thinkers aren't particularly interesting because their intellectual ambition by definition is limited to conserving things. Whereas the wacky postmodern, well, we could talk about them potentially later on postmodernists. because I don't even think necessarily they're left wing, which is another misunderstanding. But lots of left wing, you can have um, ridiculous ideas of where you could take theory in a practical sense. You've had to suffer that in the Soviet Union. But I don't see necessarily why it has to be that way and why we have to take these ideas. It, it's the lack of filtering. It is one of the ironies that the more you've expanded the universities, the more you've let all that toxic theoretical discharge get into society. It doesn't have to be toxic, but it can be. Hey, Constantine. Do you like privacy? Yes. It's like going to the toilet. What? Well, not having a VPN is like using the toilet without shutting the door. You don't want anyone knowing your dirty business. That's why I use ExpressVPN 
and you should too. We've interviewed Jordan Peterson, Douglas Murray, Lord Nigel Lawson, as well as a whole host of other great minds. I thought this was an advert for ExpressVPN. Yeah, and this is a simile you use, toilet doors. Why not mention that ExpressVPN creates a secure encrypted tunnel between your device and the internet, so your online activity can't be seen by anyone, but or that your internet service provider knows every single website you visit. They can sell this information to ad companies and tech giants, who then use your data to target you, which is why you need ExpressVPN. I was just going to say. Why didn't you mention it works on phones, laptops, even routers, so everyone who shares your Wi-Fi is protected? And all you have to do is just fire up the ExpressVPN app, click one button. It's as easy as closing the bathroom door. I thought the toilet was a great metaphor. Yeah, okay. Get an extra three months of ExpressVPN free by going to expressvpn.com forward slash trigger. Come on, Francis. That's expressvpn.com slash trigger for three extra months free. It's absolutely fascinating. And the breakdown and explaining what's been going on and your own experiences. To someone who is listening to this and didn't go to university, intellectually curious, what is, what, what is postmodernism? Explain to that person what postmodernism is and then the effects that it's having on society, particularly universities at the moment. Right. It sounds like an academic answer, but one of the problems is if you ask what postmodernism is, it's defined by various people in various ways. Mm. So I'll give you my definition but there will be people who disagree. And this is one of the frustrating things. If no one can agree on the definition, how do you analyze it? Very postmodern, by the way. <laughs> exactly. But I think the shortest version would be to say that it's, it's a response to modernism. And I think that's also one of the misapprehensions. Modernism defined as, in art and culture, uh, highly technologized societies. So, you know, Duchamp, I think um, David Starkey talked about that. The fragmentation of technological society, modernist art was trying to represent that or engage with it. And for me, postmodernism are intellectuals struggling to think, well, how do we, given this fragmentation, so Samuel Beckett, people like that, uh, Sartre, the, the existentialists, everyone's trying to make sense of what this technological society has done. And they came up against a brick wall with existentialism. So Sartre wrote a critique of dialectical reason, which took existentialism and tried to make it Marxist. Mm. Um, who else? T.S. Eliot, I think what's one of the ironies, he was a conservative. But in his poetry, uh, you know, the wasteland, you know, this isn't news, but it's not full of giggles and laughs. It's dark, dark stuff. Um, the hollow men. It describes my career, actually. I think at one point in The Hollow Men, they say, this is how the world ends, not with a bang, but a whimper. Um, <laughs> mine ended, my career ended with, I did an online class where none of the students show their faces. So it was like some very ugly narcissus looking in this screen, this pool, looking back at myself. Um, and one by one, these non-faces with just a name disappeared off the screen. And that was my last lecture ever. So, so that was nice. But I mean, postmodernism. <laughs> modernism is what it's reacting to, and it's trying to make sense of that. So there was an article in the Telegraph. Uh, by the time this goes out, it would maybe about two Thursdays ago. Nick Timothy, who you might remember the name, he was an advisor to Theresa May. So this is a bit like the right-wing version of Alistair Campbell. Given Nick Timothy's performance as a political advisor, how does he get the gig writing for a national newspaper? 
Um, he didn't seem to go very well with Teresa. But he does, he does uh, anti-blames postmodernism as people tend to do. And he mentioned specifically Foucault and Derrida. Now, so are you okay? I can ex explain differently, but if you took Foucault and Derrida, this is someone writing in a national newspaper, they're his definition of what postmodern thinkers are. Foucault and Douglas Murray's written negatively about Foucault, but Foucault was a French thinker who's trying to make sense of this, the, the, these modern trends, the alienating aspects of technology. And what he did was look at various epochs in history. He called them epistemes. And his argument was that it's a, um, what we can say intellectually, how you conceptualize things, is dominated by ways of thinking that you may not even realize you're being circumscribed by. So if you took it back to classical times, they had notions of virtue. They had notions of honor. That we just don't have. So Socrates famously died. He, he got offered a chance to escape. He refused because he said it was honor. If you look at uh, Sophocles and Antigone, this is a story of a woman who, um, it's a big internecine conflict in a Greek city-state, but her brother gets killed. He tries to have a, a coup. And the, 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 the custom at the time was you have to bury your relations and it was, word was put out, he's lying outside the city. If anyone tries to bury him, they will be killed. And she buries him and says, sod you, it's my blood. I have to bury him, that is the law. So she goes to the wall for the law. There's the Spartans, you know, the Battle of Thermopylae. There's that famous uh, thing, oh, stranger passing by. What was it? Oh, stranger passing by, go tell the Spartans. Loyal to the, our customs, here we lie. So they all died because they didn't want to portray what it was to be a Spartan. So that's an example of classical times. Modern times, we don't think in that way. So one of the obvious arguments is, you know, that the postmodernists are defined as being relativists. There's no absolute truth. Nothing really matters. And I just think it's a massive mischaracterization. Richard Rorty is another postmodernist and he was someone said to him are you a postmodernist or a nihilist and he said neither i'm an ethnocentrist and what he meant by that was he said he found american democratic values it was very unusual for doing this he said american democratic values are actually what's worked the best so he didn't believe in truth and he quipped he got taken up for it, it was i think it was mostly joking he said the truth is what your peers will allow you to get away with saying. But he had this strong sense of, like science, all knowledge is tested. And in any given environment, the truth will be what survives the testing process. So Einstein eventually overtook at a subatomic level, Newtonian physics doesn't work. So Newtonian physics was the episteme, it was the way of thinking. And that controlled how we were able to think about gravity. Einstein comes along. And actually, he's rewritten, and they're still using technology now. Uh, there was something in the paper about, in a black hole, they're finding that um, Einstein's theory is being borne out. They can see what's happening. But they think they might be coming to the point when Einstein's theory is stretched to the limit. So that's a Foucaultian idea. Now, I don't know what you think. I don't see the idea that truth is relative. They, they mean it in quite a specific way.
Um, and Derrida is the other guy. He's often labeled as he doesn't believe in a concept of truth. What he actually means is things are incommensurable. So one of the examples is a brilliant guy. If people want to check this out because it is complicated, but there's a guy called um, Chris Watkin, who he's like my uh, doppelganger. I'm like um, Dr. Jekyll. He's like Mr. Hyde. He's really nice. <laughs> and he'll say things like, he'll be asked a really stupid question. And he'll say, that's a wonderful, helpful question. Thank you. And then explain it. But he does Derrida and Foucault, and he's from the Reformed Church. So he's actually a, a, a card-carrying, banner-waving Christian. And he engages with Derrida and Foucault and applies them to old, old biblical scriptures. And he makes the point that um, with Derrida, it's like saying um, if someone nearest and dearest to you, you said, how much would it take before you'd agree to have them killed? Well, this is a bad question for me because I just have a tariff. <laughs> you just take notes. Yeah. So I, I, I know He's my... got his card laminated. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I know my figure. But I think the point... That's comforting. Thanks, mate. I think the point Chris Watkins trying to make is that, well, actually, you can't put a value on your nearest and dearest. It's an incommensurable question. So in that sense, truth is relative. And that's the short version. He'll give lots of ethical examples from Christianity. Do you think this is part of the problem, though, in that we are talking about these topics, whether it's postmodernism, whether it's all of these, you know, big terms, these schools of thought, and then people are talking about them in the media, people are talking about them in their workplace. And the problem is, is that most people, to put it bluntly, haven't done the reading and they're having discussions about things that they fundamentally don't understand. Well, it's Richard Grannon interview. I'll take you back to that. And it was interesting, I know, it, I don't think it was, you were, you're making a serious point, Constantine, but you did say at one point, thinking isn't power. Um, so give me some practical examples. And Richard Grannon did the Chris Watkin thing. Oh, thank you. And, and the, but then if you actually listen to what he said, he basically He's said, saying it was a stupid question. <laughs> no, but what he actually then went on to say was we need to think more. And we need to have the Socratic method. And there's a point that Theodore Adorno has this beautiful phrase where he said, when the doors are barricaded, it's doubly important thought not be interrupted. And he's, one of the points of that is that when it's all kicking off, like Newcastle on a Saturday night, it's, you, people have this reaction. It's like, let's go and do something. And often they go down the wrong. So I'll give you one very specific, hopefully helpful example to listeners or viewers. Uh, Bob Geldof, Live Aid. He did this, remember him swearing at the, I remember the originally swearing at the television saying, you know, no, don't bother about credit cards sending cash or something. He's going, you know, swearing in his Irish accent. Fast forward, he's on the Thames lobbying abuse at Nigel Farage about the EU. Now, the whole point about Live Aid was you're dealing with the symptom of African poverty. Now, I'd argue from an economic, having an economics background, one of the major problems of um, African poverty, it's not everything, but a major element is African farmers have never been able to compete on an equal playing field with places like the EU. Why? Because it's not, they don't have free access. There's tariffs. So if Bob Geldof wanted to do one practical thing, if he genuinely cared about the African people, he'd be banging on the doors in Brussels saying, give African farmers access. And that would, but no, we want Italian, French farmers 
to be subsidised. So that was the point about Bob Geldof did something incredibly practical. He got off his backside, people will laud him, but then he seems completely oblivious because he's a celebrity and he's famous for being famous. Um, he's not stupid, but also I don't think he's half as bright as he thinks he is. And another example would be, I'd please indulge me, I want, I want to get this off my chest. Did you, have you ever seen, there's a Norwegian, I think Swedish co-production called Skavlen. He was a journalist and they're on YouTube. He did a series of interviews with quite big names. Um, so Jordan Peterson, Richard Dawkins, these type of people he'd interview. And he had Jarvis Cocker on. And it's all done in English, you know, which is helpful. Um, but Jarvis Cocker went on this rant about Brexit. And he was saying it was, uh, what, what was he saying? Basically, he made analogies with uh, the music industry and said that occasionally you'll get a, a record that will get to number one from nowhere. And he says it's very dodgy. And he didn't really have an argument apart from it. Overwhelmingly, what came across was Jarvis Cocker didn't like the fact that Britain had voted to leave the EU. And you can ask many questions about that. But one is, why do we care what Jarvis Cocker thinks? He gets that platform because he's made a song, ironically, called Common People. So he claims to understand <laughs> common people. And I just thought, you know, what an absolute tosser. You've completely misunderstood. And if I can ask you to a question, you know, um, you probably won't be aware, but you know the, the Welsh voted for devolution in 1997. Um, so they had a Welsh assembly. Do you know what the turnout was? It was, I think it was 50.2% of the people turned out. Do you know what the majority, it was a binary question, do you want a Welsh assembly or do you not? Do you know what the, the winning percentage was? 0.6%. And guess what? We got a Welsh assembly. Without a big fuss. Well, because it, that was, it was self, it was explained, this is the question. There weren't any limits. It was only just 50% of the population. If you don't care enough to vote, you don't have a say. Winner takes all. I can't, I've never ever seen anyone in any media format complain that this was a travesty or a stitch up. So Jarvis. Well, it's one of the, the, the gen, if you look at the genesis of trigonometry with me and Francis, one of the things that we both found, and I, and I use, I don't use this term lightly. I was disgusted by the way that people reacted to their vote. And by the way, as you well know, Francis and I both voted Remain in that referendum. But the idea that because you didn't get the result you wanted out of a referendum, that you are entitled to undermine the result, that you're entitled to try to overturn the result. I mean, I've told the story before, but I'll tell it again. I was in a, having a meal with some friends from my translation days uh, when I was in, in Edinburgh for the festival. And uh, there, there was a French girl there, and she was what well, I don't know what the problem is in France. We had <laughs> the vote, and uh, it did not go away, so we did it again. And she looked at me as if I was supposed to, like, clap along to this. It was outrageous, and, and I completely agree with you. Sorry to interrupt, but just while, as you're saying that, there was a documentary where Francois Hollande was interviewed, and I think it might have even been a BBC documentary when I still watch the BBC. That's how long ago it was. And he basically said to the interviewer, why did you not just ignore the vote? And it was cold seriousness. It's yeah, your yeah. point. This is how these people think. And so for us, as two people who actually believe in democracy and in fair play and justice, and which are all British values, by the way, that we've seemed to have forgotten about, uh, we were both 
indignant at that in itself. And then, of course, the other thing, which is anyone who disagrees with me is a massive racist and all of that. Just complete lies. And I felt very... Uh, I was disgusted by it. You, you can't just... I mean, when democracy does not go your way, whether that's Donald Trump and his non-election, right, or Brexit or whatever, you could, democracy relies on loser's consent. That's what that's about. And the moment you start messing with that program, you're going down a very dark path very, very quickly. So uh, I hear you on that. But coming back to your point about uh, thinking versus doing, I think uh, what I what we were talking about with Richard is that I agree with you that when we're talking about, and I want to ask you about what you think is actually going on, uh, because it's not postmodernism in your conception. The fact of the matter is that no matter what ideas you have, at the end of the day, that is not going to change reality out there, right? If you're concerned about the university, or you're concerned about the media, or if you're concerned about any of those things, there is something that you're going to have to do once you've decided what that is, once you've thought about it, once you've had the ideas and conceptions and structures and whatever, someone somewhere is going to have to do something to change those things. And so for me, for example, with the media, what you're talking about is we are sitting right here doing this. We are changing the media by doing this. If we were just thinking, if you were sitting at home and he was sitting at home and I was sitting at home and we were having ideas about how the media ought to be different we'd be in a very different position because this wouldn't exist and people wouldn't be watching this and they wouldn't go, oh, three people can sit down and have a rational conversation for an hour. Uh, and so I think doing and thinking, they, they will go hand in hand. What you're talking about is very much the Thomas Sowell thing, which is people who do things that make them feel good instead of things that actually make the right difference. I, th I think what I'm also doing is I, I totally agree. And I was, I knew when you were talking with Richard, it wasn't, it, it wasn't the point. I wasn't trying to misrepresent it. It wasn't no, no, the I only, know you yeah, but it wasn't the only aspect you were mentioning. Yeah. And I totally, and I think David Starkey mentioned about it, it's like being under an elephant. You can poke. Mm. The irony is I'm retired. I've, I've wanted to come into the music. MC Hammer can't touch this. <laughs> <laughs> but that is profoundly sad. Yes. yes. The fact that I'm here because, and I did, to be fair to me, which I do like to be, I was writing in the 19, uh, the, the turn of the 2000s, 2003, I wrote an article about the bureaucracy. And Frank Ferreides, you know, ignore me, go and read a lot of his stuff. He'd been writing about this book after book after book. So this has been going on, but the slight, it's, I'm not sure I'm disagreeing with you, but it's just that, yeah, doing all this stuff is, but one point I'd make is, the fact that you're having to do this, you're taking risks, you're being entrepreneurial, where mm -hmm. all three of us, I think I still pay just about pay tax, we're paying for a national broadcaster to insult us on a daily basis. That gets my goat. I get it. So apart from anything else, I, 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 I demand my right not to pay to be insulted. I agree with you. Yeah. But, but my point is to you is thinking about that and being indignant about it isn't going to change anything, right? No, no, no I, I totally agree. And that, but but yeah. anyway, let's not, let's not dwell on that because actually I, I think the most fascinating question to ask you is what you think is going on in the world. Where is all this stuff that we talk about on the show, the stuff that is destroying universities a step at a time, what is going on and where's that come from? Well, it relates to what we've just been talking about right. in the sense I get the sense and you chip in if you think I'm going off on one, but it's this, we go around in circles. So I mentioned the misrepresentation in my view of what postmodernism is. Mm -hmm. But if I just throw out another idea, if I say to you, anyone heard of Nietzsche? A lot of people, if they have heard of him, will say, oh yeah, isn't that the guy who ended up snogging a horse and went mad? 
And just that one little example, he, the accusation he snogged a horse because he had syphilis, I think, is the, what goes around. The syphilis has never been confirmed, and it's actually highly unlikely, because this isn't from personal experience, but tertiary <laughs> syphilis, tertiary syphilis takes about two or three years to hit. He had 11 years before he died. But he went gaga, but they think it was a benign tumour, potentially, or they, they, they've looked at his medical records and tried to... Tertiary syphilis was the default diagnosis. So that's just one little example. It was the COVID of its day. <laughs> <laughs> but at least you enjoyed getting syphilis, unlike that, That's what you think. <laughs> well, but Francis's point is that people are using terms they don't know about. Yes. So a very quick answer to what you're saying is, I think what's dominating the, the problem in our society is, there's a, not even, because it sounds like conspiracy theories, there's a technocratic, and to call them an elite is wrong because they're heraldically bad at their jobs. Mm. But I can't, I can't think of a major institution. I was moaning too off camera about the situation, our train system. But there are managers to the guilds in all major institutions in this country who on a routine, regular basis can't punch their way out of a wet paper bag. And my, but they will give you tabulations. They will give you formulations. It's the Neil Ferguson effect mm. with COVID. There isn't any system we have, apparently, to hold these people to account. So Andrew Dole's been in this chair and said that it doesn't matter if you vote whichever party, you're not getting genuine left or right. What you're getting, and it reminded me of, I saw an interview Douglas Murray did with Ed Vasey. Ed Vasey's in the Lords now, but I think at one point Ed Vasey was culture secretary. And it made me think, talking about Nietzsche, it made me think of Nietzsche's last man. Um, Douglas Murray, you know, faults, good things. I, I happen to think he's very good at a lot of what he does. When he was arguing with Ed Vasey, it just became so apparent to me uh, Douglas had integrity. He had a rational argument that everyone can agree or disagree with, but you know what he's saying. And he was arguing it. I think the discussion was about the Tate Gallery and they were decolonizing it. Oh, I saw it. that interview. Yeah. He was very good on that. Yeah, but Ed Vasey wasn't. No. And I'd ask you, why do you think Ed Vasey wasn't? My answer would be because he's a time-serving technocrat who's gone to the Lords. I'd have a different answer for you. Well, my view is he's a time-serving technocrat. He's part of a club. I'll give you a different example that Francis might be more interested in. Uh, Angela Rayner professional northerner. <laughs> so she's in the commons, never loses an opportunity. I'm from north. Um, have you heard her say one single thing about the grooming gangs? No. As a woman, a white woman from the north of England, it's jaw-dropping. And my answer, why she's never said anything, and if she has, I apologise, but she's certainly not said it in a high-profile uh, forum. Because she's part of a club whether you're Conservative, Lib Dem, Labour, even SNP, you're part of a club, you've got all these perks, you're, you're performing in the media realm. They're not engaging with genuine truth. They're not engaging with genuine politics. So my answer to your question is, you know, what's going on? We're going around in a loop where concepts don't have genuine depth because people don't understand the terms they're using, or they do and they deliberately misuse them. So we could talk about it another time, but I think Stephen Hicks, I don't think you like him, but his analysis of postmodernism is just off the scale wrong. Or at least if he was prepared to say this is applied 
uh, postmodernism and its people have taken some ideas, mashed them up and made a complete mess of them, then I'd agree with him. But the way in which he talks about some of these trends, um, I just think is profoundly wrong. Um, but that's led to, and I get what you're saying about doing things, but one of, I think, the strongest arguments you and Francis keep putting forward is we need rational argument in good faith. Now, who could disagree with that? My Pervese. <laughs> and, and I'm not joking. This is what I was going to say Sorry, to you. Yeah. No, no, no. I, I think this is fascinating. By the way, uh, I'm sure it would be very interesting to talk to Stephen Hicks about and maybe even have both of you on at the mm. same time um, for an interview that would be watched by about three people <laughs> uh, about the, the depths of postmodernism. But I think the reason these people operate in the way that they do. And I, I think about this because, you know, I'm interested in debating ideas and, and communicating ideas and, mm -hmm. and so on. I think they are captured by an ideology that essentially prevents them from seeking the truth. And so if you're at Vasey and you're talking about that particular issue, what that issue is really about, they were talking about the tape, but it was in the context of slavery, racism and all of that, right? Racism, sexism, uh, trans. There are a few issues on which, if you're part of this sort of liberal elite in an inverted commas, you have not a rationally derived opinion, but received wisdom. You must think about this. This is where the mantra trans women are women comes from. Nobody who's ever thought about biology, anatomy, rationality, human nature, men and women, childbirth, any aspect of humanity that is actually real could possibly make that statement in good faith. It is a statement of faith. It is a statement of ideological adherence. Will I just jump in there? I'd, I'd slightly correct you, it's not good, it's not faith, it's bad faith. Uh, what I mean is it's a belief rather than a rationally derived opinion. Yeah, but except in, in with someone like Ed Vasey, my point is he's intelligence, this is what makes it worse. If I thought Ed Vasey believed a word he said, I'd have a little bit more respect I believe, for him. I believe that he does no, believe what he says. He, he's bright enough. He knows what he's doing, and that's what saddens me. No one... Um, it just came into my mind as I'm speaking that one of the things that I finally stopped watching the BBC, I will watch when you're on Question Time then. <laughs> I'll have to find where I've put it on my widescreen TV little um, thing. But uh, Robert Winston... So this is one of the issues, like, how do you talk about things? Yes. Yeah. Robert Winston... You can, I can whisper on about postmodernism. People think, what's he going on about? No mark, very minor career. Robert Winston, it's like if God gave you the most respected biologist in this mm -hmm. country, it would be Robert Winston. Yes. yes. He's on Question Time. He gave what I thought, I'm not being critical, an anodyne answer about, because he was asked about this trans issue, about chromosomes. He explained the basic biology about chromosomes. Fiona Bruce, who's the Kathy Newman of the BBC. So what you're saying is, um, what Fiona Bruce then said was, when they passed over the question, I think I need to point out at this point, there will be some viewers at home who are offended by what you've just said. How can you be offended by the country's most eminent biologist giving you a couple of lines from what used to be a basic biology textbook? To so, me, go, sorry, go well, for it and I'll make my point. If, if an academic at that standard mm -hmm. is reduced to not being, not even going beyond a basic A-level biology book, but then having, so he's, he's, it's in for a dig. He's performing at a level exponentially below his intellectual capability when it comes to biology. And even at that low level, 
he's been told by a numbnut um, presenter who thinks because she sat in the chair, she's the controller of the knowledge. He's been corrected. So my, this is what, what I'd add to the discussion is, how do you have any type of rational debate when the people most qualified, even in good faith, he wasn't saying anything nasty, they're shut down or they're told that your argument is not valid. Where does this rational debate occur? Yeah. It, it's got to occur outside of these institutions because the institutions are corrupted. Therefore, you can't have good faith rational debate in them because they will be shut down through the tools that we all know that, that they use. So it has to be in places like this. But I would also say to you, Paul, there's also a biological element to this, which is we are programmed to be part of a tribe. We are programmed to want to be accepted because in the days of the African savannah, being expelled from the tribe meant death. It meant being on your own. It meant not being able to hunt. You'd be dead within days. So we don't want to be expelled from the tribe. We don't want to be ostracized. We don't want to be alienated. It's hardwired into us. So to go against the grain, to stand up against a mob, that is a preserve of very few people who, in my, dare I say, uneducated point of view, that to me is almost overriding your biology. But the trouble I have with that argument is that it's the mob, and this is the role of my background in studying technology, the mo and you'll well know the mob is the vocal mob on Twitter. No, but it's not, but, it, but it's also, but, but the mob, I also mean the people, for instance, let's say you do, let's say you say trans women aren't women. I don't, let's say you work at the BBC, you say, look, I don't believe trans women are, are, are women. I believe a woman is an adult human female. Now, 10 years ago, that is, that, I mean, if you had that conversation 10 years ago, people would look at you like you were a fucking weirdo. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So what you're saying, sorry, I'm, but, just, but, I'm just clarifying, your mob though, I think what you mean is, it's the institution of the BBC and the dominant culture. No, but, no? It, but, it, but yes. it's, yeah, it's, it is, it's a dominant culture, but it's also the fear that there are people within that institution who you may not even know, who may be nice to your face, who when they hear you say that, will try and get you fired as a result. But that's not, my only slight, I'm not being pedantic probably will sound pedantic, but what I'm trying to say is that is not a mob, as I understand a mob. My frustration is, you're, well, you're totally correct. Mm. What you're describing, though, is an institution that is failing at its most basic level. The managers are failing. Agreed. The people, yeah, but this isn't a mob. People are scared because they, they don't want to be part of the tribe. Mm. This is a Thomas Sowell self-anointed mini-tribe. Agreed. Who are consciously and deliberately imposing their values on the country. I agreed. I agree. And when I was, I, I tell you the story because it very much fits this narrative. Uh, I have a foreign name. I have dark skin. I look a bit different. I, I'm clearly not British, blah, 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 blah. And I used to go in and do this radio program on the BBC when I was doing stand-up uh, a couple of nights a week. And uh, they'd invite me on. And there was this uh, young woman there who works at the BBC who would co-host it with me. And because I have a foreign name and dark, she, she'd assume I'm one of them. And the way they talk about these things, some of them at least at the BBC, I mean, uh, they don't, you think that these people don't understand uh, that rather they pretend that what they're saying is one thing, but then something else. No, 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 they're true believers. And she was saying to me, well, now, now we've got, now we're in charge. You know, it's about equity. It's about diversity. It's like, that's how they think. They think 
that the country is overrun by people like you, racist, bigoted northerners, right? <laughs> Who are a bit, uh, you know. Uh, and uh, finally, we have the opportunity to take Britain into the 21st century. That's how they think. They think that this is our time. We are the revolutionaries. They're not sitting there, you know, going, oh, we're going to do some evil shit here. They think they're improving the world. They are true believers. And in terms of, you know, the, the majority, minority, whoever, look, the, the history of the world, you know this better than me, the history of the world is always determined by a small group of people uh, who, who, who sees the public's imagination, who sees the means of control over that society, whatever it is. Uh, there's a great um, speech that Bridget Gabriel gave about Islamic extremists. I don't know if you've ever seen this. It's, it's one of the most powerful speeches you ever heard uh, talking about this, that, you know, the history of the world is changed by a small group of people who, um, who believe very strongly in what they believe in, and they seize the, the means of production <laughs> in, 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 in Marxist language. Yeah, I think what I'd add to that, though, is a slightly different perspective. I think, you know, um, Hannah Arendt wrote um, The Banality of Evil. Yes. Mm -hmm. And if I got to chat with her, if she was alive, I'd say, I think we should have called it the evil of banality. Mm. Yes. Because yes. it's the banal nature of what's going on. Yes. Yeah. So I'll give you an example, um, because I appreciate it can all be airy-fairy if we're not careful, and it probably already has been. But a very specific example, if you, because I think the university is in a dire situation and listeners or viewers may think, oh, he's bitter. <laughs> I'm not. Um, because he's retired, didn't go the way he wanted to. But I suggest go to the University of Leeds website. They've got a uh, initiative, inverted commas, redefining the curriculum, which I, I think you probably can work out what this is. And they've got a load of people doing a professionally produced video. And it reminds me, are you familiar with David Sedaris? Yes. He's an American raconteur, mm -hmm. a very funny guy. He's got quite a squeaky voice yes. and tells stories. And whenever he tells them in front of an audience, it's brilliant. But he, he was a journalist and he um, did a, a, an article for something called Stadium Mate. And basically, it's a, bit, it's a bizarre example, but it was um, for, it's basically a catheter. So you go to a big sports event in America, and I'm not judging Americans, but some of them are quite portly. <laughs> and they're... They've got their jumbo Coke and their massive burgers and everything, and they don't want to have to go to the toilet. So you can go in your chair into your stadium, mate. And he said he was testing it. Yeah, he was testing it. I don't think it ever took off. <laughs> There's a surprise. But the look on your face is what I was going to say. Yeah. He tested it, and he said he was, he was checking into a hotel somewhere. And he said, in theory, you just go whenever you want. And he said, but he was just about to check in, and he decided to have a whittle. And he said, the person who's serving at the counter of the hotel knew what he was doing. And he knew what he was doing because he had this thousand yard stare. And why I say that is, you look at this video, these University of Leeds employees are mouthing inanities about, we are going to make the curriculum available to everyone, dumbing down, um, et cetera, et cetera. And they have this look. And there's a brilliant, brilliant book. It's not, I think it's been reissued because I've got a relatively modern copy, but there's a guy called Robert J. Lifton and it was called Thought Reform, The Psychology of Totalism. And then I think the subtitle was Brainwashing in China. And he was an American psychiatrist in the army. And in the 1950s, it was, the book's published in the 1960s, but he did his research. 1950s, 
because I know you've got your Soviet background. Um, and there's the, I could mention examples from the Nazi period of, you know, this totalitarian. And we, maybe the Chinese example doesn't get spoken of enough. But he did this study um, of basically brainwashed. I think in Chinese it's she now. Um, and there'll be Mandarin speakers at home thinking, why has he just ordered a bowl of noodles? But I think it literally means wash brain. Mm. And he got these people who'd been brainwashed. And they were tended to be Catholic priests or general Christian clergy. Um, and at the, the back of the book, it's called Chin Huen Lin. Is the, he was the most eminent professor of formal logic. I think it was probably Beijing University. And he did a, um, a confession, a written confession, and he publishes it in the appendix. And one of the things that mentioned in China, they did curriculum reform. And he gets accused, and this is why I get slightly defensive when people go on about postmodernism, because he's accused, he has to do this explanation where he says, I was accused, I, I have played um, concept games. I am guilty because I should have only fought in a way that helped the people's republic. Um, so the idea was there are limits to how you can think. And I just make the suggestion that when people are slagging off postmodernism, just be aware, telling people the limits to which they should take thought has a bad heritage as well, as well as the misuse of these things in totalitarian societies. So in Viktor Klemprev, the Nazi example, he was a Jewish uh, philologist, a studier of language. And he makes, he's done a book called The Language of the Third Reich. Um, and it's, a, it's poignant as hell because the very beginning is he talks about Greek definitions of heroism in the classics. And he makes the point that the most brave, because in Germany at the time, heroism that was the word that was used. Like today, there are buzzwords. And he said his wife was um, so-called Aryan and he was Jewish. So he said she, her life was worse. It was unbelievably bad because she was voluntarily giving up all her privileges and being spat out in the streets. And I know it's not worse just because she didn't happen to be Jewish, but she was not Jewish and could have just walked away. And she went through all this. As he said, that is heroism. But one of the things he says was, we have this misunderstanding, you know, propaganda is so powerful. He said he'd be, he'd be sat there in, a, in an apartment and just observing uh, non-Jewish Germans and the radio would be on with Goebbels. <laughs> um, and people weren't listening. And he said they were talking about what they were gonna get the shops the next day. But he said what did have an effect as a professional philologist, he noticed certain words got redefined. And in Nazi Germany, it was the constant repetition of words in daily life that his professional experience said, and his horrible personal experience, was that's what had the most profound effect. Mm. So in this Robert J. Lifton, his analysis of these um, various people who've escaped, they had different methods, but he said there were two basic Chinese government methods. One is you're deconstructed use a postmodern term, as an individual. So your individuality, your social networks, so ideally they'd get you in thought reform prison, but they're not just prison. The uh, government did thought reform classes that people voluntarily signed up for. So if you wanted to get ahead in China, you'd sign up for your certificate. And in modern universities, what's happening is people decide the only way to get, have a very successful career, you know, despite what they tell you, teaching doesn't matter. 
that it really... Um, As a not... teacher, I could have told you that right at the start of this interview. Yeah, but they don't... They, they play in all of glossy brochures. Yeah. Um, what The only thing they're bothered about is publications mm. and if you can bring in research money. And they, they really don't care. So... Those people, they've, they've, I've, I've seen it happen. And I think, you know, the guy who wrote Darkness at Noon, Arthur Kessler, it's a brilliant book about being imprisoned in a totalitarian. It's a novel. But he did this very funny little short article where he, I think he called it The Commissars and the Yogi. He said people are divided into two types. The Yogi is the spiritualist dreamer. And the Commissar, you'll know them from, if you've, you, you'll know Constantine. But if you've ever had any engagement with any bureaucracy, you know what a commissar is. He's the person with the clipboard and the power. And the universities have created these institutions within the university where you don't have to be that good. You can climb the greasy pole by being a commissar, by enforcing language codes. And guess what? You set up a language code unit. I think Leeds has now got some harassment units. So good job I left. <laughs> but, um, and guess what? When you have a unit devoted to finding harassment, you'll know this from the Soviet example, guess what? An awful lot of harassment is found because they have to justify their own existence. And then the inefficiencies, so tell me whether this is just made up, but the, um, they measure productivity by stupid, like, for example, weight of light bulbs. So what they did is they make the light bulbs heavier and then you find you can't see through them, but they've met their targets because they've just produced bloody heavy light bulbs. So, and these, these irrationalities you're asking, you know, what's going wrong? You've got these people in institutions, within institutions that are pushing. And then it becomes a question of, again, and ironically, this is where postmodernism helps. It doesn't matter if they believe in it. So this concept of belief, there are various fascinating postmodern ways of thinking about it. You've got a young child and a, I'm guessing he uh, is Nikolai, isn't he? He doesn't know. I'm stalking you. Uh, he doesn't know. You've done more research for this interview than we have, mate, believe me. <laughs> um, he doesn't know Christmas yet. But, oh, sorry, that's a bit of an odd. I don't know whether you will celebrate Christmas. It is. Yeah, it's, yeah, yeah. I'm thinking. I'm trying yeah. to desperately scramble and New think Year. Yeah. Hanukkah or whatever. No, no, New Year, Father Frost. Right, Father Frost, sorry. Yeah. But if you wanted to explain that, you will eventually explain that to him or he'll get his presence and be all chuffed. But there's a concept where, as Zizek writes about, the concept of we pretend to pretend to believe. And what he means by that yes. is, as adults, no one will say we believe in Father Christmas. But actually, we believe in the children's innocence, even when the children have worked out this is all nonsense. We need to believe in those children believing. So... There are levels of belief, and there's another funny example. I think there's an Ethiopian tribe called the Drose, I think it is, and they're Christians, and they believe in fast, fast days, and they believe, for some bizarre reason, the leopard is a Christian animal. So, but on fast days, when the leopard's supposed to be fasting, which they believe he does, they still guard all their livestock. So we have this idea that primitive people have primitive beliefs. No, they have beliefs that they realize tie the... Un the community together, and they pick and choose what they truly believe. It's actually quite sophisticated, and we as thicker Westerners, patronizingly, but apply this to modern institutions, and what you get is there will be some of these commissars, and you'll have experienced or know of this from the Soviet Union, who are born again, 
nutty commissars. Yeah. Mm. But there are others who are doing it for completely manipulative, of course. cynical reasons. Of course, and this is why you have to... Look, you've got those people who are true believers, and they are the ones that are driving this. And they have created in the universities and in the media and in the corporate world and in sport, and we could go on, an incentive structure. And remember, people respond to incentives above all. That's, that's what drives human behavior to a large extent. People will do the thing that benefits them when, to the extent that they're able to assess that. So you've got these true believers. And then the rest of us, we are fighting over that 80, 85% in the middle of people who will go in either direction, which is why a small number of extremists can change the course of history, because if they can persuade, brainwash, manipulate, inspire, whatever the words you want to use, that big majority in the middle, they get to do whatever their program is, whatever their agenda is, that, that small group. And I think it's much worse than you say to the, to, in the sense that if these were evil people who in their technocratic elitist vision that got together and were doing blah, blah, blah. That'd be quite bad, but you can, get, you can get a lot more done and you can inspire a lot more people if you truly believe the crazy thing that you're selling. And I think these, these people, it's a religion. It's a cult that they, uh, some of them are true believers. And then there's a large group of people who will go along with it because it's convenient for them. I'm not disagreeing. I think one slight nuance I'd add is that there's um, there's a thing called I think it's Sipalink. Is it Sipalinsky? There's something like Solalinsky. No, no, sorry. It's some like Sipalinky triangles. They're called. All oh, right. And it's this weird thing is if you if you basically do three dots and then do something in the middle and join it up and basically you can get by the time you finish bisecting all these angles you get a fractal shape and all you're doing is repeating. Um, a pattern, a very simple pattern. So one interpretation of this is that, again, some of these people don't believe, but if you're in an environment where there's a certain, it goes without saying, you do this. In your local environment, if you do one little act, mm -hmm. a similar act happens somewhere else. And across society, you get this immensely symmetrical fractal pattern. Agreed. Um, so that, again, is slightly, it doesn't, it, it, it's not so much about belief. But it's, it's about the power. And it's the enforcement other, of the belief on other people. I agree with you. But, the, but what I'm trying to suggest is the enforcement can be quite subliminally. Yes. And it's in um, the Nazi case, in Nazi Germany, within Jewish uh, Holocaust scholars, there is a slight division. I think they're called the intentionalists who interpret what happened mostly as Hitler's personal. But there's also a group called the structuralists, and I'm giving a broad divide. But there's a guy called Raoul Hilberg who wrote this. It's, it's, a, it's in some ways horrible, uh, beautiful writing, but horrible. It's a three volume. You can get a one volume, but the, the, the whole thing is three volumes called The Annihilation of the European Jews. And what's unique about it is he was obsessed with the bureaucratic evidence. So it's the evidence of, at the most lowest level. And there's a small pamphlet he did separately about the Reichsbahn, which is the, um, the state network system railway. And get how sick this is. He was talking about the, bu the, bu the bureaucracy creates an environment where structurally things happen that never would have on their own. And he gives the haunting example of um, they had an internal accounting system when people moved to the death camps as if they were bags of grain. And if you were... Under 11, you went free on the internal accounting system. This is how divorced from humanity. 
But the point Raoul Helbeg, and he's been criticised from other people who prefer to emphasise the intentionality of all these things. And like most things in life, my suspicion is the truth somewhere in the middle. But I just think it's a slight mistake sometimes to fail to pay very, very close attention to the way these things can occur on their own because they're part of a structure. They're not on their own, though. You still have to have the Hitler at the top. And then the structures will provide whatever the Hitler at the top wants provided. So it's a combination, like you say, the truth is in the middle. The bureaucracy of, in its, on its own has the ability to carry out the worst of things or the best of things, depending on what it is that is being sent down from the top, right? But it is the ideologues at the top that determine the course of how that goes. And that's why alternative institutions to what we've got now are so important. That's why new media is breaking the mold. You talk about dumbing down. Well, what are we doing here? We're dumbing up, right? No, no. Can I give you a personal example? Because I'm reading all this bizarre stuff. There's a guy in the States called Henry Abramson, who's a rabbi, um, who does some amazing, because I'm getting into Old Testament type scripture stuff from a literary point of view. And he breaks down the Talmud and the Torah and the Midrash and there's a brilliant scholar, David Boyerin, sorry, Daniel Boyerin, who's, I give him the uh, prize for the best title I've read in recent times. It's Socrates and the Fat Rabbis. He's written a book. And he's a fascinating, devout rabbinical scholar. And it's your point. I'm, I can get all this on the internet. It's absolutely amazing. But without sounding pompous, well, I will sound pompous, if you've got pre-existing reading skills and cultural hinterland and background, you can make use of all this stuff. But there are a whole generation of students I've left behind who don't have this. And um, Frank Ferreira makes a really funny comment. He said in one of his books, he, he criticised the fact that some of his students in the humanities can get a whole degree without having read a complete book. And he said, this is outrageous. And he said, after he'd published the book, he got contacted by a university administrator and thought, oh God, what's going to be said now? And the administrator said, yes, you're correct. And he's like, what? He goes, you're correct. And this is a wonderful thing because it just shows we have multi-learning platforms. <laughs> <laughs> and th this is the point. It, there, there are I'm not, I don't mean to bang on about the structural elements, mm. but... If the, and what you know, why well, you are I, a critical yeah. theorist after all, yeah. But I, why am I here because I believe in this? I what did I, I tell my first story is I believe in the truth, I agree with you. And we can all we can do is what we can do. But I also think it made me think because I think you, you, you sometimes get frustrated, it strikes me because you want you do want practical answers now, you understand why. Here's just a slightly odd thought I just think we could all be a bit more canny, you know. Um, on bit radio four, I'll stop listening to that as well. Um, is it Robinson in the morning? The guy who does the interviews. Nick Robinson. Nick. And have you ever heard him let anyone speak for more than five words before he interrupts them? I have, actually. I think Nick Robinson is not as bad as others, but I take right. your point. They all interrupt all the right. time. Sorry, well, I might have picked the wrong person, yeah. but mm. it, I, one of the reasons I just stopped listening was it's not because I'm being petty. It's just I want to listen to people speak. I was just wondering whether there are more techniques whereby the one thing on radio they can't stand is silence. When they've interrupted you for the third time, just don't say anything until they say, are you there? Can you say something? I'll say, I'll respond when you stop interrupting me. I do think they're very practical. It sounds like a very small example, but I do think there are practical things. And you've, um, because I stalk you online, there's the one where you're discussing... Um, this interview gets more troubling every minute. <laughs> 
is London stop being English? The whole John Cleese. Mm. Yeah. And there's a fascinating, it is, you've got it on your site where you highlight. But it was the power of logic. And forgive me, it's not been snippy, but you weren't saying anything. It wasn't, you know, Derrida. Well, my entire, the tragic of my entire career is I say very obvious things and everyone goes, oh my God, that's amazing. But don't you think it's funny? You just said, yeah. if Scotland, sorry, if London was 50% Scottish, would it be fair to say it's less English? And, but you had, you were, forgive me, I think you got in on that discussion because you have an ethnic background. Yeah, I mm. did. There wasn't a white, there was two uh, mixed race presenters, um, three people from ethnic minorities discussing, has London stopped being white? Something. And, um, but you just said, if we use the example of Scottishness, uh, would, that, would it be like, and the, the look of absolute confusion. But it's your point about That's why I said it's a, it's a cult. It's a cult. That's why it produces the blank stare when I give them the logical example, because suddenly they're confronted with it's it, with reality. Or maybe they're using a stadium, mate. <laughs> <laughs> Paul, to, touching on universities, and isn't the problem that what this system produces is an absence of meritocracy? From my own industry, not teaching but comedy, I saw. Well, we both saw it. This cult, ideology, whatever you want to call it, come in and infect an entire industry. And what happened in the Edinburgh Festival, the moment I knew that the Edinburgh Festival was finished as an institution was because you go and see shows that are patently not four and five star shows. They were then given four and five stars because they espouse the ideology. They said the right words, they had the right views, the right opinions, etc. And once that happens, meritocracy is done because you're, it's not an accurate reflection of the quality of the work. Isn't that what's happening at universities? Yeah, there's layers, layers to respond to that. And before I forget, it was talking about comedy. I came across it, it was in Nietzsche's Birth of Tragedy. Mm. He referred to comics. They're the toxic discharge of absurdities, nausea. <laughs> Which I thought was... Uh... Doesn't sound like a compliment, mate. <laughs> <laughs> but no, but um, the meritocracy... I went because I lived in Edinburgh for the, all that time. I went to um, a lot of the the, the fringe, and it, it strikes me that it's very similar to the BBC. It's not what you know; it's who you know. And it is surprising, though, because I think there's a, there's a bit of unity between us in the sense of background, in the sense you're in a comedy industry, if I can call it that. And you would have thought the most basic thing you do in comedy is tell jokes. And the most basic element of a joke is, and this is just obvious to comedians, that you don't know in advance what's funny. You push the boundaries or you turn into Michael McIntyre. Or the weirdest, I'd love to get your opinion on Frankie Boyle. What happened to him? Um, from a seemingly normal, you know, telling terribly cruel jokes to going full on woke. Um, strange things happen. But anyway, Paul, just before you go on, yeah. and I, I, have, I know I've been hogging the microphone, I should say Michael McIntyre is a fantastic comedian. He's absolutely brilliant. He's technically brilliant. He's fantastic at making a large number of people laugh. He's not necessarily an intellectual person's comedian, but, but you know, if you're going to be selling out stadiums, that Michael McIntyre is brilliant. Francis and I both have a lot of respect for yeah. him. No. Yeah. I have my, it's completely personal. My, this is why I mentioned Frankie Ball in the same sentence. Mm. When he was funny, I'm a dark, 
Yeah. And my interior monologue is notes from the underground, mm. Dostoevsky going around in my head. So I'm not a yardstick and I'm not a professional comic. No, and I can imagine to do what he does. He, he's incredible. Michael McIntyre is a supremely skilled comedian. Yeah, just, it's, it's not, just for not, you. Your, not, not for you. Not for you. Yeah. <laughs> but the, the point that I was trying to make is the absence of meritocracy or when you erode meritocracy, the institution collapses. And that's any institution. And my point is, isn't that what's happening at universities now? Where you do a literature degree, you don't have to read the book. You know, you don't have the depth of study. You don't have the intellectual rigor. If you don't have the intellectual rigor, then, you're, then it's not going to be an accurate reflection of your ability in that particular subject. If it's not an accurate reflection of your ability in that particular subject, then ultimately the degree that you were given is worthless. Yeah, and... That, I mentioned, I, I went to university in 85 and it was about 12% of people. And then my career actually matched. When I was doing my PhD, it was in the second year of my PhD, which I think was about 91. I personally benefited because there was a massive expansion and I got to do tutorials. And this is 1991, I think in Edinburgh, I was paid 18 pound an hour. It was like happy days. I did as many hours as I possibly could. But that was because they expanded the numbers. And that's when you notice it's your point. When you expand the numbers in and of itself, that reduces quality because you've gone away from this selective. And I've always joked that, you know, I'd have loved to have played for Liverpool, the main the football team. The main thing stopping me is fat and talentless. <laughs> so I could probably still play for Everton. <laughs> but You're going to get destroyed after this interview by Anton. I'd, I'd like to say I'm a fast runner, but I'm not even that. Um, <laughs> But so that's the sheer expansion dilutes. And, but then I, I, I've got mixed views because I'm a massive believer in elitism. Mm. So it really annoys me that Richard Grannon had this, he's a Spartan life coaching or something, mm. doesn't he? Because I had this concept of Spartan therapy. Mm. You leave businessmen on their underpants on the top of the hill in Wales where I live and shout at them a lot. And they'll either recover or like the Spartans did, they die on the mountainside. But um, where was I going with this? We were talking about meritocracy within the university system. Yeah, and so it's, it's the expansion, the numbers, the sheer numbers. So, and then there's the fact the minute they start paying. So I remember there was one point in my career yes. where I was marking and one of the commissars said to me, uh, there's a massive disparity between the marks we're both giving. So I showed him the comments I'd made. He said, oh, I see. I said, what do you mean? He said, you're marking the old way. I said, I missed the memo <laughs> that said we're now, but this is how it, what did it What did that mean? What's the old way? I was using before the expansion, what would have been a first a two, one and a two, two. Nowadays, and this is the Guardian, which I know you two are massive fans of. <laughs> they have things like the Guardian University League table. Well, we're back to the Soviet manipulation statistics and the Guardian League table, one of the criteria for how high you are is how many firsts do people leave the university with? Because that is a sign of the quality of the institution. Mm. Well, not if that feeds back, there's a feedback loop. Tell you what, lads, if we give out a lot more firsts, we go up the table, everyone's like, mm. everyone's doing it. And why, if, if you're recruiting, let's just say you, you, you use my old standards and <laughs> the students and their parents, the helicopter parents, who, by the way, now attend, I think Frank Frady again writes about this, they attend open days. So I remember saying any questions, I used to do open days with the admissions tutor. 
and any questions and the parents and the, the kids are just sat there i'm thinking i was gonna say you do know you're gonna have to come to university and write some essays on your own but i don't think that's true because i do know of parents helping this you know professional parents helping their kids write essays Paul, one of the things that I noticed in my career in education is towards the end, it was a realisation that what schools were was essentially a factory for harvesting data, which then successive governments used to prove that they were doing a good job in education. So, we, for instance, the, the way that the government deduced that they were doing a good job in primary schools is the SATs, which kids took at the age of uh, 11. We had to teach them grammar. Now, the way we taught them grammar didn't, in fact, help them in any particular way with their writing, didn't take, teach them how to be better writers, how to construct a sentence, uh, punctuation, or any of that. All it taught them was how to pass a grammar test. So we used to cram the kids full of this useless information that in two weeks' time they would have forgotten about simply to pass a test. But once they've passed the test and the, kid and the school gets 85%, the government can go, look up what a good job we're doing, tick. Is that what the university sector is like? Yeah, it's, I've mentioned it before, the idea of the Soviet, when everything's driven by statistics, you know, statistics are eminently fakeable. And this is why, I, right at the very beginning, everyone should be trained in statistics mm. to know their weaknesses. Statistics are incredibly powerful and they get a bad rap because they're so often misused because people don't know how to interpret them. If you don't know the difference in the median, the, you know, the, the arithmet arithmetic average, I might know it, but I can't say it. Mm -hmm. um, this, has, this has an impact. And you're completely correct. What that allows, when everything's data-driven, the people in charge of the data are all powerful. But at Leeds, for example, that was one of the former, I believe it was one of the former vice chancellors, Sir Alan Langland. Um, he was going to get rid of the classics department at Leeds. And they had to get an international petition to stop him. And at the moment, uh, University of Turku in Finland, which I've been to, their classics department's under threat. And it's because of you. Why, if you're obsessed with the statistics? And um, guess what? The classics are quite difficult. So to commit to teaching students the classics, which I would argue is the single most important thing we could do on a practical level to improve things. So if we go to a slight tangent, uh, the whole issue about non-binary stuff and trans, read Ovid's Metamorphoses, and it's, it relates to Narcissus, but um, is it Lariope um, is the mother of Narcissus, and she asks a blind seer, um, a forecaster of the future, what her son's outcome was going to be. And he's blind because initially he stood on... No, he was... He was um, Juno and Jupiter, there's a point to this, but it's because Juno and Jupiter, the god Jupiter and his wife Juno, Teresus is the name of the seer, he stood on two snakes copulating, and because of the coitus interruptus, <laughs> they um, made him, turned him into a woman as a punishment, don't shoot the messenger. So he's turned into a woman, so uh, he then manages to get the snakes back and he's turned back to a man. So Juno and Jupiter are arguing over who has most sexual pleasure, a man or a woman. So they thought, I know, we'll ask Teresa's, Teresa's, I think his name is. Uh, we'll ask him what he thinks as he's experienced both. And then he gives the wrong answer. He says the woman has too much pleasure. So she makes him blind. So then he makes the prediction about Narcissus. When Narcissus comes along, it says in Ovid's Metamorphoses, Narcissus was beloved of men and women. 
So he's basically Sam Smith ahead of his time. <laughs> um, but my point is, the, by the, you know, there's a clue in the title, Metamorphoses. It's about changing. It's about fluidity. If these poor kids could read Ovid and have it explained to them intelligently, oh, that's interesting about identity as fluid. This has been known since the beginning of time. It's when you get the mermaid ideologues that these type of ideas get, A, it's the dumbed down version. B, it has no roots with actual community knowledge, which is what the Greek myths had. And it's just hilarious because the Greek gods were, they intervened and were jealous of humans. They did loads of mad stuff because guess what? The Greeks understood their gods were just ways of thinking. It wasn't ideological. And the gods would do contradictory things. Guess what? Life's contradictory. Life, fate, you never know. All the point about hubris and nemesis, all these things, life's going to bite you in the arse. Mm-hmm. That is what the Greeks taught. Now, my point would be when universities, because we're talking about how could the BBC improve? How could universities improve? Well, I'll tell you what, next time some stupid ignoramus from HR, and that's basically anyone from HR, mm-hmm. comes to give a, a training course. Why, you know, classics departments around the world are under threat. I would pay for the classics department to teach internal training using the Socratic method, like Richard Grandin said, using the Greek myths and provide substantial stuff worth engaging with. I could imagine a load of academics, and this is the bad faith part of it. Academics sit on these training courses and the vast majority aren't stupid and they're not ideological and they're sat there thinking, I don't believe we're doing this. And the vice chancellor of University of Leeds will say, we're a wonderful community and we're all doing, and look, you've just been trained on gender fluidity. And she must know her staff think, most of them think this is nonsense on stilts. And that's the bad faith gets replicated. But she, it's, it's a Dutch woman who's in charge of Leeds and she'll be on a hundreds of thousands of pounds for propagating what she must know deep down her staff think is intellectually vacuous. So if that's the leader of a matter, Leeds is a big university, approximately 35,000 students. If that's the leadership, and it goes back to my Ed Vasey point, if he's a lord and he's espousing bad faith and he's showing no moral character, and it's the, you're totally right, programs like this, the fact that Douglas Murray puts himself out there. I worry, I think Richard Grannon has said, I worry about uh, Jordan Peterson his own health, because I think it seems to have taken on an awful lot, like a saviour complex. Um, but it does, it, I, I think you're right, Constantine, that perhaps we could go both ways. Perhaps, obviously, you keep doing this type of stuff, but I don't think we should ever stop holding them to account because they're not doing their jobs. Mm. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I just, I, I don't think you're going to get very far with that. Uh, I think you have to, we have to let go of the old institutions. Well, you, but then, that, forgive me, that's the type of defeatist thing I was saying It's not before. defeatist at all. The, well, the end could, of one thing is always the birth of something new. Well, why couldn't we, though, as a society and as public figure, well, I'm not a public figure, but public figures, why couldn't we argue for things like proper teaching of classics? You can argue for anything, no, no, but you're I mean, just not going to get it. No, no, well, I'm saying strategically. So, for example, your, your idea about the internet, if you look at what Jordan Peterson's doing with the Book of Genesis, um, that... And it's, it's interesting, it's, it's, it is, he's been criticised because it's a certain type of male demographic who are lost, so the incel type community. But he can sell out stadium 
when uh, some... I think it goes beyond the Intel community, his audience. No, 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 yeah. no. I, I said he'd been criticised for that. Yeah, 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 yeah. But my point is that particular demographic feel lost. They lack meaning. Yes. And I think it's the beginning of your book on uh, Love Letter to the West, available at all good bookshops. <laughs> you actually quote Solzhenitsyn and say when when the when a tree is rotten at its core, and it's about spirituality. And I think you've both said you say grace before meals now. Mm. There's there's a loss of spirituality. And I understand you're not going to get the toothpaste back in the tube. You can't expect everyone suddenly to become religious. But you can connect with the wisdom of the classics. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. But my point is, and I think we could do it more aggressively. I don't think it's pie in the sky. Um, for example, with Russian, um, again, Jordan Peterson and others, um, I was going to say bang on, but I'm a massive Dostoevsky fan. Where there's an institute, uh, Cervantes, Instituto Cervantes, Spanish culture, there's the Academy Francaise, etc. Where's the Russian? Is the one? Timing's not great for that. But, uh, <laughs> no, but, no, but, but Paul, but let, we have to wrap up because you can see how much we've enjoyed this because yeah. we've overrun by about 45 minutes. But the answer to the problem that you're talking about is for you to get on the internet and give people that classical education in the form of YouTube lectures. That's how this gets addressed, starting there and working our way up to bigger institutions over time. There are universities that are starting up that are going to offer a different type of curriculum. That's how this gets solved, is people like you going out there and making something for people to enjoy. Because as we've seen with this and with all sorts of other shows, there's an appetite out there for that. So uh, I, I challenge you. Uh, yeah, but do you know why I'm not tempted to? Because there's people like Chris Watkins, Henry Abramson. I think there's too many people doing too much stuff in a way. I'd much rather try and help them. Because he, Chris Watkins is just brilliant. The, the, the level... He can explain Derrida and Foucault at such a level of relative simplicity, given the difficulty of the content, that I think people would be shocked suddenly. Um, why is this, why the, Foucault's a bogeyman, why is this so fascinating? But Paul, uh, my, my point to you would be, um, I think uh, everybody has a role to play mm. in, in this. So for instance, Constantine can write and deliver a speech much better than me that will go viral. I will, I'm not going to go into the Oxford Union, write a speech and deliver it. But what I can do is I can write comedy that lampoons the sacred cows of the day, the Jacindas, all the rest of it, and that people will share and that people, and I read the comments and people will go, nailed it, spot on, absolutely. We've all got our part to play. Well, except, can I give you an example of online? Yeah. Uh, Unheard magazine, mm -hmm. which I really like. We all do. The great, great yeah. publication. So there's a Belgian guy. I think he's a postdoc. He wrote a brilliant article. I'm a massive fan of Jean Baudrillard's work, who, again, he's like an Old Testament prophet. He's been mm. misinterpreted. He really slagged off modern life. Yeah. Brilliant article about Jean Baudrillard and how he's relevant to modern-day America. I normally don't look at the comments. Look down at the comments, and someone said, oh, he could have said this in three paragraphs. It's like, no, he couldn't. And it's like... <laughs> He's Belgian. It's probably his fifth language. Brilliant. I thought it was a very good article. Yeah. I'm a Beaujard to pump myself up, but I'm basically a Beaujard expert. I thought it was brilliant. Um, snotty comments. So I wrote, and I normally don't, and the irony is that my uh, online pseudonym is Theodore Adorno, because I don't like using my real name, who's a cultural Marxist. So I wrote, your comment is typical of the Twitter generation. Everything has to be said in so many characters. It's a great article. Leave him alone. So he basically replied, Theodore Adorno happened to be a great musicologist. So he said, if you are the spirit of Theodore Adorno, go off and tinkle your ivories. And I said, 
I will go off and tinkle my ivories if you go off and scrub your nan. Full stop. And my point is, this isn't great. Even I understand that's not Socratic method. Yeah. But this is the point that online, and that I do think there's uh, Peter Sloterdijk, the German philosopher, said that more communication builds more conflict. This idea that necessarily do more. I think, no, you do more targeted stuff, do better stuff. You know, fail, try again, fail better. Um, so sometimes I think you shouldn't have below the line comments. So there's magazines, Compact Magazine is one of them in, in the States. Um, the Critic is another magazine here online. Great stuff that you're talking about. They actually don't, there's no comment. And that's something else maybe that could be addressed is the idea this, I, what the technology does brilliantly is encourage loads and loads of interactivity. I would argue significantly too much. And we actually need to find ways to winnow it, to filter it, um, and that would improve things. Well, Paul, it's been a sensational interview. We've both, it, it's been brilliant. We've loved every second of it. Thank you so much for coming on. The question that we always end our interviews is with is what is the one thing we're not talking about as a society that we really should be? Can I cheat and give you two very quick ones? Go. And we will do a couple of questions for our locals only that only they will get to see as yeah. well. Um, I said one of them I said I wouldn't do because I've got a friend in the village, Becky, and her husband's called Adolf, which is another story. Um, but Becky, I said uh, dog poo bags. I live in the countryside, and I just think it's the perfect embodiment, so to speak, of... Um, Virtue signalling. People will leave them full of dog crap because that's what they're there for in the middle of nowhere because there isn't a bin. I mean, now, can you explain to me why is that a passive-aggressive? Why do people do that? Um, it strikes me that it's, it's this passive-aggressive. There isn't a bin. I'm making some type of point. But it just strikes me it's, it's this failure to think through the consequences. That will now be there unless somebody else picks it up and moves it. There aren't any bins because it's called the countryside, you muppet. Um, so that will be there for the next thousand years, unless it's a biodegradable bag. The other thing is tea bags, which, no offence, was a lovely cup of tea. Mm. But um, it's such a simple thing that tea, you know, the tea they put in tea bags is absolutely atrocious quality. Everybody uses tea bags. And if you're woke and economically focused, it, the, the tea they put in is crap, so people in the developing world who grow tea don't get a good price because it's the fannings off the floor of the factory. And it's so you can buy great quality tea, use a teapot, use a strainer, hardly any more effort. And the whole world of tea is out there. But tea bags are, it's this encapsulation of the easy. I don't think it is particularly easy. It's bad for you, bad quality tea, bleached bags, glue in the bags. So you're all killing yourselves. And I drink great tea. And on that note, thank you so much for coming. If people want to find you online, ironically enough, where is the best place to do well, that? Well, this is what's funny. You're going to have to deal with all the complaints. I don't have a mobile phone. Yep. Um, I don't have an online presence. Um, I'm like Heidegger's run off to the German forest. I live in the Welsh hills. So anyone who wants to have a go, please just bother you two. Sounds good to me. Yeah. That is what they usually do. We're going to ask you a couple of questions from our supporters that only they will get to see an answer on our locals too. Uh, but for now, Paul, been great to have you on. Thank you so much. Does the doctor think that the lack of access to universities from the working classes has resulted in the current situation with mostly middle class, upper class kids going into uni and creating strange woke religions as they have never known in inverted commas proper hardship previously?
Before you go, consider joining our exclusive member feed. As a member, you'll get ad-free and extended interviews. Click the membership link in the podcast description or find the exclusive episodes link on your podcast listening app to join us.